This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. This edition of Media Business Matters is the first of four special episodes. On March 30, 2017, the University of Michigan hosted the Future of Digital Media Businesses Symposium, which brought together four scholars who have been studying how different media industries have been disrupted by digitization. Each spoke about the transition to digital production and distribution of media industries for 30 to 40 minutes. Experts from each music recording, book publishing, television, and film industries. The talks focus on how and why each business has changed, the consequences for those working in the industry and the media they make, and what remain the greatest challenges going forward. We offer the audio from those talks here, and we'll post one a week for the next four weeks. Apologies in advance for some of the microphone glitches throughout. This episode features Lee Marshall, a reader in sociology at the University of Bristol, discussing the music industry. His main research interests center on issues concerning authorship, stardom, and the music industry, particularly how the structuring of the music industry shapes the discourses and practices of popular music production and consumption. He is currently conducting research on the value of music in the digital age. Publications include Bootlegging, Bob Dylan, The International Recording Industries, and Popular Music Matters, Essays in Honor of Simon Frith. Okay, um, I noticed mine was the only plural on there, uh, music industries, compared to the others. And um, I think actually one of the first things here is to think about, okay, what is it that we're talking about? And music gets commodified in many different ways. And so one of the things I've just... Um, thought about right when putting this together is music as an object, um, music as a service, and, and music as a right or a series of rights. And really that sort of defines what the three main sectors are within the music industry of recorded music, uh, the live music industry, and music publishing. Um, and there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of little industries within each of those sectors. Um, but then there's also a series of peripheral industries like radio broadcasting, education, um, Manufacture of instruments, all of these can be brought under the sort of the generic label of, of the music industry. And because of that, there is a, 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 a number of people who say we should refer to the music industries, plural. Um, I've never really been bothered about that, and I, I do refer to it as a singular, um, with the important proviso that you shouldn't think that the music industry is just the recording industry, because that's the, that's the conflation that often happens. Um, and um, the other thing to say, uh, with the sort of as an introduction here, is there's big differences between the popular music industry and the classical music industry. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm hoping to find out from being here, but I think the popular music industry is fairly distinctive um, in, in a number of ways. And, and most notably, it's distinctive in the sort of continuity that exists between very small-scale sort of local music scenes and the big multinational industry. And really, although there's a difference of scale, they're both part of the same system. Um, there's a sort of connection between the, the local and, and the, the, the national and international within popular music, um, that you're part of the same sort of promotion systems. And, and, and as, soon, as soon as you begin to have any engagement with trying to earn any kind of money within music, you're within a particular set of, a particular um, 
set of practices, a set of cultural practices. I'm wondering whether that's beginning to change with digitization, but certainly for the time being, I think that's um, important to, as a distinctive characteristic of, of popular music. Within classical music, classical music is much more akin to some other kinds of cultural industries where there's a much more a defined set of employers um, that you can try and get a, a job with in terms of sort of symphony orchestras and things. And that isn't quite the same within popular music because popular musicians have always tended to be free contractors. They've been self-employed workers. Um, and... and, and um, Okay, that's complicated, but I, I don't have time for, for much more detail on that at the moment. Um, and the other definition I wanted to begin with is trying to define digital. Because um, there's another debate here. Of course, the first mass uh, market digital um, product in music was the CD. And the CD was introduced in March 1982. So we're now into well beyond 30 years of digitization. Um, the other important um, invention around that time was MIDI, um, the music instrument digital interface, which enabled samplers and musical instruments to begin talking to each other within the same kind of code, um, which um, was a revolutionary invention within popular music production. Um, and so a lot of the trends that I'm going to start talking about were happening well before what we think of as the, the digital era. Um, and um, actually, that sort of goes on to the next slide. Um, oh, just before I do that. Um, so there's a debate about the, what, where the digital era starts. I'm starting with 1999, partly because it's sort of a little tribute to Prince, um, and, and partly um, Napster is 1999, and it has a certain sort of millennial Big Bang feel to it for, for what we're talking about here. Um, so if we look at 1999... And, and what the situation was. Um, 1999 is, is, is actually the sort of the high point of the old model um, in terms of um, the strength of the recorded music industry. The record industry is clearly the dominant sector within popular music at, at that point and had been for 40 or 50 years. Um, but it was very, very strong at this point. CDs are the dominant format. Albums are the dominant... Um, mode of consumption as, as well. Um, price of a chart CD about that point was about $18, which is almost twice the subscription amount now. Um, live isn't trivial, but live is clearly secondary to um, the recorded music industry at, at that point. Um, and it's the peak year. 1999 is the highest sales figures in recorded music history up until this point. Who knows what the future holds? Um, now, the thing they said about these, some of these trends happening before then, though, is 1999 is also a really misleading year, um, which is worth remembering when you see stories about how far the record industry has fallen because they used 1999 as a peak year, and actually it was a bit deceptive anyway. Um, there's already downward, price, uh, downward pressure on CD prices from big box retailers like Walmart and, and, and Best Buy. Um, there's an antitrust investigation that's going on against the record industry um, about setting minimum recommended prices. Um, there's a teen pop boom happening in 1999, which is artificially inflating um, sales figures. I see some guilty faces that are looking right now. Um, and actually, uh, CD sales had already begun to decline in the mid-90s. Um, and then they came back up 
on the result of Backstreet Boys and, and, and Britney. Um, and, and, and so 1999 is already a, a sort of weird peak year before everything begins to fall away again. But a lot of these issues that I'm raising here were already beginning to happen. And I do think that an important question in, in a lot of the, the sort of thinking about the industries is, what if the internet never happened? Or for, in music, what if Napster never happened? Because people blame Napster for a lot of things, and really it wasn't that... Um, I want to say it wasn't that revolutionary, but it didn't have the impact that people think it had, I think, is what I would say. Um, I'm not going to talk through these in detail because it would take the rest of the talk, but that's what happened, um, starting with Napster. Those are sort of the key inventions uh, um, and sort of earth, little earthquakes that happened. The emergence of the iPod in 2001, the iTunes Store 2003, MySpace, Pandora, Facebook, and Spotify. And it's interesting, if you think about Spotify as sort of the last big bang, um, then Spotify is almost 10 years ago from its launch and um, six years ago from its US launch, which is really when it became mainstream um, within the media. So we're already quite some way away from, um, from that series of, of big inventions. Okay, back to 1999 for a moment with the emergence of Napster. There was a lot of public discussion about the music industry. It moved from the business pages to the front pages for a, a short period of time. And... Generally, the attitude was um, that the, the record industry was going to be in terminal decline. The major labels would fall. Um, there was quite a lot of glee about that from a number of, of quarters because the major labels are not popular. Um, and the idea was that independent, the internet would enable independent musicians to make a living without support from record labels. Um, so... They would make money from live performance, as musicians have for, for centuries past, according to the, um, the, the, these debates. Um, they would be able to develop new audiences and nurture them and make money from them through social media and sort of direct-to-fan platforms and things. Um, and they would benefit from what was known as the long tail, Chris Anderson's sort of concept of um, selling less of more. So everyone would be able to sell a bit of something and make a living from, from that bit. Um, so, um, that was the prophecy. Did it come true? No, not really. Um, okay, on the surface, a lot has changed in the music industry. Actually, what I, what my line of argument is, is things have changed less than people think. And there's actually, although there are a lot of changes on the surface, a lot of the underlying structures <laughs> are still fairly similar. And the record, or the music industry of 2017, still looks fairly similar to the, um, the music industry of 1999. And I want to sort of explain some of those points a little bit first. Um, okay, let's think about the, the major record labels, because they were the, um, the centerpiece of a lot of this analysis, because they were so strong at that point. Okay, so, in one sense, the prophecy was right. Record labels don't exist anymore. They all call themselves music companies because they do more than just release records. I still call them record labels because I'm kind of nostalgic about records and, and, and labels and things. Um, but they are now multifaceted, multidimensional music companies. Record labels don't exist. They have contracted. Um, they are now 30 to 40% smaller than they were in 1999. Um, 
One of the main reasons that they've contracted is not actually the decline of record sales, it's the decline of distribution. This is a thing that no one ever talks about. Um, where the record, in, record labels made their money before was having a, pretty much a monopoly over the physical distribution of CDs. Because CDs were expensive to manufacture and move around. And so everyone had to pay the distribution companies that the major labels owned in order to, to get things into shops. And so the record label majors took a cut of all of the records that were being sold. And it was distribution that was the center of their power, that was the core of what their power was. And that's, that, in a sense, is what the biggest change is that, that, that um, has happened because of the internet, because they've lost their monopoly over distribution. Um, they have consolidated. It was a big six in 1999. It then became the big five, and then the big four, and finally EMI was put out of its misery, and now it's the big three. Um, so there's only three major record labels that are uh, left now. They have lost some of their market share because they used to have about 80% of the market. It's now closer to about 65%. But market share was defined by distribution, not by label production anyway. So it's a bit complicated to understand what has happened with genuine market share. It was probably being overstated in the first place. Um, and despite all of that, they remain... The big, some of the biggest and the most important companies within the music industry framework. Um, and I want to say, explain a little bit why they remain important. Um, mainly they remain important because none of the other big companies that are emerging within the sector, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Live Nation, have really shown that much interest in developing artists. And that's a very important part of what record labels have done. Um, the record label model has been to invest in artist development, put money in early in a career where they probably lose money. You probably have heard the statistics that 90% of records released make a loss. Um, but over time, the ones that's, that last and become successful earn lots of money and cover the costs of the earlier investment and, and the losses. That's, that's been the model for 30 years or so. Um, and artist development, so, so the money is in the big names. The money is in the hits and the superstars, but someone has to invest in order to create those superstars and create those hits. And that still is the role of the, of the, the major record label, and none of the other players that have enough money or enough capital have really shown moves in that direction. So in terms of the, the music industry infrastructure, the labels remain important. They've changed their, they've changed their approach slightly, um, or in a sense, they've gone back to an old approach. Um, and there was controversy in the early 2010s about something that was called the 360 deal. Um, because in the 80s and the 90s, the major labels were only interested in CDs um, and only interested in records. And they would take a large percentage of, the of a royalty of the income that comes from CDs. And an artist would have like 15% or so if they were lucky. Um, to compensate for declining sales and declining distribution money, record labels said, okay, we're investing in your career. We want some of the T-shirt sales that you get from that career development. We want some of your live income and your publishing income as well. So they've started generating what are called multiple rights or 360 deals. You can imagine that this wasn't taken brilliantly well from artists and, and their managers. Um, but this is now the, the, the standard. In a sense, it goes back to what record labels used to do in the 1970s. Um, but, but this has been one strategy that they have used to try and compensate for declining uh, record sales. Um, 
And the fundamental strategy of record labels hasn't changed in 40 years. It's this thing about star making and, and, and career building and artist investment. And that's why I say that things are actually very similar in terms of what the industry looks like. Um, and the reason that this remains important, as I just said, is actually long tail hasn't really happened um, in a way that benefits producers. Most of the money, if you look at Anita Elbers's work on blockbusters, actually most of the money, and, and conceivably more of the money now than in the past, is in the short head, is in the big hits, is in, in, the, in the, um, the, the superstars, not in lots of smaller artists making small amounts of money. Um, there's some interesting data on that kind of stuff, but I don't have time to... Um, to run through it now. Um, so that's record labels. Record labels, certainly the major ones, are, are holding up okay, and they're now, they're, they're, their strategy is beginning to bounce back on, on, the, on the back of streaming services, for example. They've had growth for the last two or three years in, uh, globally. What about for musicians? I think the situation for musicians is not so good. Um, and actually, if we... Think about um, who has been hit hardest by changes caused by um, digitization. I think it's independent artists who were just about making a living before. And, and those, that's the group that actually are, are, are struggling most. The ones who were just above the breadline have been brought underneath the breadline. Um, so they're the ones that have been hit most from declining income from record sales because they were the ones who lived or died on record sales. There's an um, uh, uh, independent musician called Jeffrey Lewis from Brooklyn who has a, he wrote a, a number of good songs about the, uh, his experience of, a music, of the music industry. He has a very good song called Don't Let the Record Label Take You Out for Lunch. Um, and there's a line in one of his recent songs that it's a job, not an investment. Actually, for independent musicians, it's about having enough money to get through the month. Not, oh, trying to get as much exposure as you can now so I can reap the benefits in seven or eight years' time. Um, and the other big thing for, um, in terms of independent musicians is everyone now thinks they can be an independent musician. The, 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 the amount of music and the amount of musicians has increased exponentially over the last ten years. And so I've been doing some interviews with musicians um, recently, and the word that's constantly coming up is oversaturated. The market is oversaturated. You can't, you can't get heard in all of this noise. Um, and, and so that was, that's a really big part of what musicians' experience is at the moment. So actually, despite that rhetoric of um, it will be great for independent musicians and they'll be able to make a living without having to become slaves to record labels, actually, I'm not sure that really has been uh, true for the vast majority of, of musicians. So a summary of where I think think where things have stayed the same, um, the, the majors are less powerful than they were. There, there are certainly moderations of, of, of these things, but I think these are, the, these are the trends. The musician is still the central commodity, and I think that works both at the level of independent musician, where you're trying to make relationships with your audience, and at the superstar level in, in, in terms of labels, but the musician is the central thing through which everything works here. Um, money is still in the hits, not the tail. There's an increased oversupply of musicians. It makes it really hard to, to be successful. 
Um, and everyone's still complaining about royalties and rights distributions. Um, one notable thing here is actually the, the, other, the group that the internet has been best for is artists who already had an audience. Artists who had been developed coming out of the record label system had now had power because they could distribute to themselves. So, so Amanda Palmer is, is the, the, the most popular example of the sort of independent musician. Radiohead, um, all of these musicians that already had a following now had a lot more power, um, which has hit the record labels quite hard. Um, so so those, are the, those are the similarities. But you won't believe me if I say nothing has changed. So um, let me now cover some of the things that, that I think have changed and the important things. Okay, S seriously powerful new companies have emerged in, in all of the internet stuff. Um, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook. I will say to some extent, the, rec the music industry has always been a subsector of the technology industry. The gramophone companies existed to sell gramophone players. Um, in the same way that Apple goes into iTunes, uh, the iTunes store in order to sell more iPods. This, this is part of a sort of longer practice of, of, of how the industry works. And Apple and Amazon actually have been fairly conventional big players. They've been selling software in order that they can sell the hardware, which is where they really make their money. Um, it's getting more complicated now because they're getting so big that they're taking on lots of different roles. And, and Amazon is now getting into ticketing, which I think is really interesting, and, and, is, and is offering music, um, music streaming services as, as well. Google and, uh, sorry, Google and Facebook are new things. Um, and I don't quite, quite know where they fit, to be honest. And it's, it's unclear to me whether music is an end in itself or a means to another end in, in this sort of the, these internet company models. Um, the other major player is Live Nation. Um, Live Nation is actually now the biggest music company in the world if you measure by revenue. So Live Music Promoter owns lots of arenas. Um, it merged with Ticketmaster in 2010. The, Somehow or other, the future of music is in ticketing. I just can't work out how. Um, but ticketing is where all of the technological innovation is, is going on within the music industry. Um, and in the, in the late 2000s, Live Nation was promoting itself as, we are the future of music. Everything will be about live, not about records. And it's kind of become a bit more humble and decided it's just interested in, in live and it's making enough money um, thanks very much, it doesn't need to do artist development, which is what it looked like it was going to start getting in, into. Um, so Live Nation is the other um, big player that, that has emerged. Um, and that, that's because one of the things that's supposed to have changed is this idea of the live music boom, um, which I kind of am rather dismissive about, because I think the live music boom is built on sand. It's built on... The, pre, the, the, the successful artists of the previous model. Um, and so really, it's about massive ticket prices for the Rolling Stones and Roger Waters um, and Paul McCartney. Um, and say, if you look at the top, two, uh, the top grossing acts of 2016, only two of them emerged this millennium. Um, uh, Bieber and Adele, if you're interested. Um, and, um, and Adele's weird. She doesn't fit in any of this. Um, Actually, at the lower levels, ticket price increases for, for uh, the sort of uh, um, for more independent musicians or those that aren't making so much money. They have not compensated for declining record sales, and what's been happening is the closing of, of venues, which doesn't match with a live music boom. And in particular, 
what I've called up there the sort of next step venues, the one to 2,000 seaters, where someone has, has, has already emerged as a sort of local level popularity, it's very hard for them to now make a step up and start becoming more successful because the, the, of the shortage of that sort of level. So I think, actually, if you think about the music industry as a series of, of, of tiers or of steps, what you might say is sort of the, the bottom rung is still there, but the next couple of rungs have disintegrated. And, and that, that is one of the harder things for, for the, the independent musicians to deal with. And what else has changed? This is the biggest thing and the most obvious thing, because in consumption, pretty much everything has changed over the last 20 years. Um, as I said, in 1999, CDs were dominant and, and albums were dominant. CDs are dead and albums are dying. Um, those, those, um, we've got the rise of the track and now the rise of the playlist. This idea of music like water, that it's just a constant flow that you turn on and off and it follows you um, from room to room and picks up where you left off and, and things like that. We're in the age of abundance. Um, we now have more music available. I think there's... Um, 12 hours of music gets put on SoundCloud every 10 minutes or something. Um, and Spotify has a catalogue of 30 million tracks. Um, and so there's just so much music available, this, this sort of oversaturation argument. One thing I think is interesting in terms of cultural change is we now are in an, an age of immediacy. If I say, ah, oh, you should hear about this artist, I really love this album, you just put it up on your phone and you hear it then, rather than reading about it. Or, or someone telling you about it, and you're waiting to, and to, to actually listen to the music um, later on. There's no delay between hearing about and hearing. And I think culturally that's probably quite significant. Um, obviously the rise of, of, of free music and, and, and freemium, although there, are, there has to a certain extent always been free music. Um, and now this big shift from models that were based on ownership to models that are based on access. From... Um, it's funny that we thought of the download as a revolutionary thing, and really, it only lasted for about 10 years, and now it's gone. The same way as the 8-track. Um, and so we're moving very quickly into an age of, of, of streaming rather than of, of, um, of download. So we've gone from a thing to something that pretends to be a thing that something isn't a, something that isn't a thing at all. And, and it's, we're still sort of culturally coming to terms with, with those transitions. Um, and, okay, so, so on, I, could, I, said, I could go on and on about any one of these slides, but on, on this one, really, I could go on about lots of, of stuff. But um, ev sort of everything, pretty much, has changed within music consumption. Um, it's, it's a very all-encompassing shift that has happened. So, um, putting these things together, what do these changes mean? Uh, it beats me. Um, and, and as I say, to be perfectly honest, if I did know what they mean, I probably wouldn't be standing here telling them to you. <laughs> Um, over the last five years or so, the, the industry has become relatively stable since the emergence of Spotify. It's, it's not on the front pages in any way like it was in, in the past. Piracy is not the same discourse that it was. Um, and I've been thinking as I, was, as I was putting this talk together, okay, is that because we're now in the new model? It's found an equilibrium to deal with those changes in consumption that I was just talking about, and now things will carry on as, as they, they were. Which is kind of the line I was pushing earlier on in the talk a little bit, that, that things have, they've, they found their way and things are still pretty much the same. Um, or is it actually 
that this is the, still the download moment. We're still in a sort of transitional period and something's going to happen and then I'm not going to recognize what it was afterwards. And I generally don't know the answer to that question um, at this point. So I wanted to finish with um, just a, 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 a two or three open questions about what I think these questions would have to be answered at, at some point. Um, the first one I, I phrase as the what happens when Bono dies question. Um, as I said, the existing ecology, music industry ecology, is about artist investment by the labels and reap the benefits with more, when those artists become more successful. And to a large extent, and this fits with the live music boom, we're still riding on the back of the investments of 30 and 40 years ago when the old model existed. And what happens when those artists aren't around? Because what happens when those sort of cash cows are not there anymore? Are we developing artists now who will have the same function in 30 years' time? My guess is no, but that's also probably partly nostalgic um, because you never think of contemporary artists as having longevity until they get longevity. And then suddenly you realize that Britney Spears has actually been around for 25 years. Um, so so, so um, I think that's an... Are we still on the fumes, if you like, of the old model? And when those go, actually the record labels do tumble. Um, really the question here, though, is what happens when Bono's fans die? Because Bono's fans and the baby boomer generation are the ones who are still existing in the old model. They're the ones who are still willing to pay for those quaint old things, albums. Um, and they're the ones that have the money to put $600 down for a Rolling Stones ticket. Um, it's depending on the wealth of the superfan. And the superfan tends to be fairly middle-aged. Um, what happens when the next generation of music consumers comes up who have been brought up on Spotify? Um, and, 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 and so I think really the, the, the demographic question here is not only about artists, it's about the audience as, as well. Um, and, and maybe there's a transition happening there. Secondly, I just noticed I'm fast running out of time. Um, what does GAFA do next? And I think there is a question about where the music industry fits broad, more broadly within an internet industry. Um, and I said earlier, is music an end in itself or is it a means to another end? And there are lots of disputes that happen, with, particularly with Google, um, about ads and freemium and royalty rates. In a sense, those are old-fashioned disputes. Those are just standard record industry stuff that's been going on all the, all the time. But is there something else further down the line? There is a genuine sort of transformation moment. Um, is there a big bang that's coming? Is it about music video? Um, because YouTube is the biggest music streaming service in the world. Um, and obviously that's very much connected to video. Um, and so I don't know, because I don't understand Google and Facebook. Every time I try and understand them, my head explodes. Um, but they're clearly, curation is becoming more powerful, and, and as sort of central, centralized platforms, they're getting more power, and I'm just wondering what, if anything, they will do that really destabilizes the existing infrastructure. And they may do nothing. And the final slide I have here is, and this, this is the thing that's driving my research at the moment, is where is value in this system? And when people pay for subscription services, 
what are they actually paying for? The obvious answer is they're paying for access to music rather than music itself. Um, and I think you can, I, I was talking to, to John earlier about, it. I think actually once you start thinking about it like that, then there's a question, well, what were they paying for before when they had a CD? Were they paying for the object or were they paying for the, the, the music that's within that object? And I think that opens up a series of, of interesting questions. And I think it's possible that music has no value. Um, this is the sort of theoretical line I'm interested in at the moment. And, and maybe music only has value as a means to an end, as something what's referred to as a cybernetic commodity, that purpose is to generate data about its users, about its audience, and it's the data that's valuable. And if that's the case, what does that mean for people making music? What does that mean for musicians? And what does that mean for, for record labels? Because they're effectively making something that doesn't have value. Um, and when I said about the, the sort of the second and third rungs of the music industry not existing anymore, maybe the more rungs don't exist. And what you have is a mass of amateur music production that's in a sort of decommodified or decommercialized space, and then just a sort of Disneyfied mainstream industry of, of, the, of the superstars, and not much connection between them. Um, and as I said, this is speculative at, at the moment. I, I really don't know what that, what that answer is. But I think that the, the value question is one of the things that's really um, bothering the music industry at the, at the moment. Um, okay, and, and that's it. Thank you. All, all of this stuff is sort of on my academia page because I am in the same sort of creative industry that the independent musicians are and trying to get exposure. Um, so there's the details. Thank you.